telling a little story. In uh, 2008, I believe it was, um, I had the privilege of um, kind of checking something off of my bucket list. For uh, a couple of years previous to that, I had started to really get into the outdoors and climbing and uh, mountaineering to some extent and uh, had become quite a passion of mine. And one of my bucket list dreams was to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And uh, it kind of coincided with a trip that I took to Africa to be a part of a couple of different ministries that were functioning out of both South Africa and Kenya that um, I tacked on six days on the end of my trip uh, home, much to the chagrin of my wife, uh, who was here holding down the fort, but tacked on uh, six days on the end of my trip to attempt to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It was an incredible, incredible experience. And uh, I remember distinctly one, uh, one kind of part of this trip that as I read this parable this morning, uh, this moment clicked in my head. It was this moment that I got kind of a visual picture, I think, of a little bit of what Jesus was talking about in uh, the parable we'll look at today. But uh, So I, I booked this ticket, and uh, if you have not climbed, this is, uh, this is a photo, and I'll kind of explain what's going on in this photo here. But um, So I, I booked this trip, and I got picked up at a hotel uh, early in the morning and, uh, by a guy named Paul. Paul was my guide. He was the person, the outfitter, or the guy that was in charge of setting up the entire trip. And I had never met Paul. I had just been emailing with him back and forth, uh, wired him a bunch of money, and just hoped that Paul would actually show up at my hotel. And Paul uh, did, in fact, show up at my hotel. But Paul was driving this little, uh, you know, like four-seat sedan. And there were three people on the trip with me, two, uh, two other people that I had never met before from Washington, D.C., and we get into this little car, and our gear barely fits in the back of it. And I remember thinking, man, is it just the four of us that are climbing this mountain? Because if so, uh, this is going to be a tough trip. Like, there, I don't see a lot of food in this car right now. I don't see a lot of provisions in this car. I don't see a tent in this car. And those were none of the things that we were told to pack. So uh, we show up to the gate of Kilimanjaro, and this is the scene that's happening. Now, this is actually inside the gate. I could not find a picture uh, from out or from uh, inside looking outside of the gate, but this is now every, all these people are kind of in the national park. Imagine all of these people on the outside of the gate, though. And that's what we drove through. So we drive on this windy, windy road, kind of through uh, almost the Serengeti. We pull up to this gate, but before we get there, there's hundreds of men that are standing on the outside of the park waiting on the sides of the road. And as our car drives up, they're all waving uh, these pieces of paper in the air, and they're screaming at us, and they're yelling, and I have no idea what's going on at this point. And we kind of drive through the gate, and the gate closes behind us, and then all of these men come running up to the gate, and they put their hands in the bars, and they're all kind of climbing over each other, yelling and yelling. And I can't understand, obviously, anything that they're yelling at this point. They're speaking in a different language. And I'm in there, and I'm, I'm totally overwhelmed at this point. And then I see Paul, our guide, kind of calmly get out, and he tells us what to do with our bags, and, and he says, line them all up here. And then Paul kind of walkly, or, uh, calmly walks over to the gate, and he begins just pointing at men. And he just points at one, and, and this guy's, you know, three or, or, or four people back, and then he kind of steps forward, and then he points at another one, and by the kind of the end of this, he's pointed at 10 to 12 men. And the gate opens, and these men wearing often tattered shoes, carrying very, very small backpacks. Uh, to, that was the extent of their personal effects. They carry these things in. And these had been the men that were then chosen to be our porters for the trip. 
These 12 men would be the men that would carry all of our gear. They would carry the tents. They would carry the food. They would carry uh, these five-gallon uh, five propane tanks up the side of the mountain so that they could cook, oftentimes carrying it on their head, climbing the entire mountain. These men had been chosen to work. They showed up that morning not knowing if they would get a job. They were chosen to work, and now they were going to be on the side of a mountain for the next six days. Families had no idea if they would come home that evening. They were chosen. They were handpicked by Paul to be on the trip with us, to be porters. And these men, the, the looks on their faces, pure elation when they were chosen. Because they knew what this meant was, one, that they would get paid. Paul would pay them the wage that they had agreed to. But two, most likely, their western climbers, myself, would give them tips at the end of it. And this was provision for them. As I was on the trip, I began to kind of talk to Paul a little bit and talk to some of these men. And getting chosen for a trip with a, like this was kind of like a lottery situation. Some men were chosen over and over and over because they were uh, seen as the best porters, the best people to be on the side of the mountain. But some men had never been chosen before. And if they could be chosen, they would make a ton of money over the course of six days for what they needed, for their, uh, their living wage. And I can just remember, the, the, the moment I remember was seeing their faces as they walked in, as they walked through that gate. Seeing their just, just elated, just so happy. Happy to be on the trip, happy to meet us, happy to be a part of what was going on. But I think happy because this meant that they were now employed. This meant that in six days when they would go back home to their families, they would have something to show up and say, look what I did. Look what I have. Look what I can provide to the family." Towards the end of Matthew, Jesus tells a story about some workers in a very, very similar situation. Matthew 20, 1 through 16, it's called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We're going to look at this story this morning. Let me begin by praying, and then, uh, and then we'll get into it. God, we, um, we pray this morning, Lord, that your scripture would be transformative. Lord, that this is not just a story in which we read uh, and, and maybe take a, a thought or two, but it actually becomes a story that transforms something within us, that changes the way we understand ourselves, that changes the way that we understand who you are. God, speak to us this morning through your word. May it be powerful, may it be convicting, may it be challenging. May it transform the very fabric of who we are as individuals and as a people together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, instead of actually reading this story this morning, I'm going to kind of retell it, all right? If you would like to read along or uh, go home and read the story, it's again Matthew 20. 1 through 16. But here's essentially what's happening in the story. Early in the morning, around 6 a.m., an owner of a vineyard, or a grape farm, as I would probably call it, traveled into the city to hire some laborers. Knowing the underemployed would congregate in a certain area of town, he wasted no time making his way to the area where men waited to be hired. 
Upon arriving, he chose several of the workers and con- uh, contracted to pay them a denarius, which was essentially a living wage, a full day's living wage. And around 9 a.m., the man traveled the long, dusty road back to the city to the same exact place. Seeing those who had yet to be hired for the day's work, he offered them a job and committed to pay them a fair wage, it says. And he took that same trip again at noon, and then he took the same trip again at 3 p.m., each time hiring more men and agreeing to pay them what he would consider a fair wage. And at 5 p.m., one hour before the end of the workday, the owner travels one last time back into the city and still finds men standing idle, waiting, hoping for employment. These men had likely been passed over for the 11 hours previous to the man going into the city. They were probably nervous to go home, once again, communicating to the family that they had not received work for the day. And the owner at this point asks the men, he says, why do you stand here all day? And the men reply, because no one has hired us. And with no agreement for any compensation at all, the owner says, you too go into the vineyard for the last hour of work. And at the end of the day, the owner calls his foreman, tells him to settle up with the workers, stating that those hired last should be paid first. So those hired at the 11th hour were called to the foreman, and they were given a denarius. The men hired earlier in the day, seeing this exchange, became excited, uh, expecting their pay to be greater than what they had agreed to earlier because the length of their workday was much longer. When the men hired earlier in the day were given the same pay, they immediately began to grumble because they thought their payment was unfair. We worked longer hours under the hot sun, and yet we're paid the same as those who came at the end of the day? And the owner calmly replies, My friend... I am doing no wrong. You agreed to a denarius for a day's, work of, or a day's worth of work. I am paying you in accordance with our agreement. Is it wrong if I want to pay these other men the same wage? Are you frustrated by my generosity? After reading the parable, I tend to ask myself, any parable, this one or or any other, I tend to ask myself, well, what do I actually do with this story? What am I supposed to take from this story? Now, in the beginning, Jesus seems pretty clear that the story is a picture of the kingdom. He says the kingdom is like. But what about the kingdom does this story illustrate? And this morning, I want to suggest that this parable illustrates two different elements of the kingdom. Each can be seen when we read the story with a focus on the different key characters. We learn one thing when we read read focused on the workers, but I think we learn another thing when we read focused on the owners. So first, let's look at the workers. Let's read the parable as if our focus of attention were on the men who were hired. You see, when you read focused on the hired workers, the story takes shape as a warning toward our posture. The workers hired first grumbled against the owner because they felt entitled to greater pay than what they had agreed to. They had worked longer. They might have worked harder. They were certainly the first ones chosen. They were the ones that had worked in the heat all day long. And they were convinced they deserved something greater 
than what they had received. Now, if you honestly put yourself in this very same situation, you might feel the same way, right? When I read this story, if I were to put myself in this situation, I feel like I might have some of those same feelings. Man, I've been here for 12 hours. I was the first one hired. I worked all day long. And I'm getting paid the same thing? That doesn't seem to make sense. You see, our American culture is built on the backbone of those that work hardest will be rewarded. It's an unspoken value in our culture. And it's assumed that hard work will be compensated appropriately. We have grown so accustomed to this idea that, frankly, anything less than this seems unfair. So here is the first warning about the kingdom that I think we draw from this story. The kingdom is not given to those who feel entitled to it. We have to be okay with the reality that the kingdom is not fair in the way we culturally understand fairness. Our understanding of fairness is attached to merit. We get what we earn. We achieve that which we work for. The outcomes of our actions are intrinsically connected to the, outcome, or to the actions themselves. Those who worked longest should get paid the most. That's what seems fair to us from a cultural perspective. But the kingdom is not concerned about our ideas of fairness. The kingdom of God is concerned only with justice, only with grace, with mercy, and with love. And these things do not always conform to what we wish was fair. Jesus illustrates the seemingly unfairness of the kingdom in this story to bring attention to the entitlement that was plaguing his disciples and I believe is poisoning our lives. You see, after uh, earlier in chapter 18 and 19 of Matthew, after hearing that God celebrates more over the one lost sheep than the 99 and seeing that children were indeed first in the kingdom and watching the rich young ruler walk away because of his wealth, the disciples begin to get worried. And that small seed of entitlement sets in. And then Peter has to ask the question that I believe many of us would ask, myself included. Hey, Jesus, what's in this thing for us? I mean, we've been pretty committed to you. We've been following you for quite a while. So what exactly is in this thing for us? Entitlement begins with what I believe is a harmless feeding thought of, hey, why not me? Or what's in it for me? But if given time and if given energy, entitlement will destroy your life. I believe it will kill your faith. It poisons us and leads us to an existence of disappointment, to frustration, and to anger. In a moment of transparency and a moment of honesty and reflection, take out uh, a piece of paper, maybe the, the bulletin that you have or a piece of paper. If you don't have it, pull out your phone or if you don't have any of those things, I'd ask why not. But then beyond that, I would say uh, just in your mind, write down a few of the things that you feel entitled to in your life. Take a moment. And if nothing comes to mind, pray this prayer. God, where is entitlement in my life? What are the things I feel 
entitled to, the things that I feel like I deserve. Write those things down for a moment. Some of these things were things that maybe uh, I felt some of us in this community would have felt before, but here are a couple of things, uh, a couple of places where I I have sensed entitlement might creep in. The deserving of a better house. Maybe a better job. Maybe it's kids who obeyed you more. Maybe it's just entrance into grad school. It might be a husband that did more around the house. It might be a wife that would stop nagging. It might mean just just a year of better health. Maybe it's just more money. Like, I work really hard. I feel like I deserve more money. Maybe it's attention from others. It might be a community that cares for me more. It might be as simple as, man, I just wish I had some time for myself. I feel like I deserve some time for myself. The list goes on and on and on, and it's, it's an exhaustive list. Maybe you had some of these things on your list, maybe you didn't. But just like it did for those who were hired first, entitlement begins to blind us to the love and grace of Christ. Instead of seeing Him, His goodness, His provision, His mercy, His providence, we can only see ourselves, and become fixated on what we believe we deserve. You see, the seed was planted in Peter's mind, and the dominoes begin to fall. And Jesus quickly uses this story to expose what is happening, and then warn his followers of the pitfall of entitlement. As much as the parable of the laborers in the vineyard exposes entitlement of the workers, if we solely focus on that, then I do believe we miss seeing the owner for who he truly is. And this is the other focus of the story that I think we need to have. You see, on the surface when we read this story, if we read it just for its literal content, it would leave you wondering, how in the world is this vineyard still in business? The owner, when he could be focused on business development and growth, is spending most of his day walking to and from the city, finding day laborers. His disorganization has led him to be completely unaware of how many laborers it would actually take to get the daily tasks done. A well-run vineyard would have matrices in place, or matrici, I don't know how you say that, but in place to know exactly the amount of staffing that would be needed to maximize work efficiency and minimize overhead. Beyond that, his payment method is reckless. And the fact he has a complete disregard for equity of pay. His generosity flies in the face of sound business practice. Even still, if he wanted to be generous, pay those he hired first, first. Then when they receive what they agreed to, they would leave, and then pay those hired last the same wage, and he bypasses the comparison ensuing frustrations of his labor force. You see, in a lot of ways, if we read this literally, this story could be about how not to run an efficient vineyard. (laughs) But instead, I would argue, maybe Jesus is painting a picture of how recklessly compassionate and graceful the kingdom really is. You see, the vineyard that Jesus tells us about is intentionally run differently. 
The owner is barely around, not because he's unorganized, but because his compassion leads him into the marketplace. And so a job that would normally be done by a foreman or a manager is undertaken by the owner himself. And again and again and again throughout the day, he travels back to the city to offer work to the unemployed. These men idly standing for the entire city to see have been bypassed. They're probably filled with doubt and shame, and the owner cannot bear to leave them there. He is compelled to go back, to keep hiring, to keep inviting. And later at the end of the day, when the wages are supposed to be paid, the owner specifically directs his foreman to pay those he hired last, first. Not because he is careless in how he pays, but because the way to do it that way would be the ultimate showing of grace. The ultimate showing of all people are equal in the kingdom of God. And all the men standing there see the extravagant generosity, the extravagant grace of the owner. It's on display for all people to see. Some see it as amazing grace. Others see it as frustrating grace. You see, in a way, the owner of this parable reminds me a little bit of, a so- of the sower in another one of Jesus' famous parables. You would think seed, a somewhat precious commodity, would be delicately and strategically placed in the places where it was most likely to produce a crop. Instead, what we see is a picture of a sower unabashedly throwing seed everywhere. And certainly some falls on the soil. But then some is in the weeds, and some is getting trampled on by the others walking on the path. From a sower's perspective, which I am not one, but I would guess, this is an inefficient way to plant a crop. Maybe as inefficient as spending most of your day walking to and from a city hiring what other people consider to be the most unemployed men in the city. Here is what we draw when we look at the parable from the actions of the owner. God's grace is recklessly extravagant. God's grace is recklessly extravagant. Has anyone ever extended reckless grace to you? A grace that just doesn't even make sense. I can remember when I was uh, probably 14 and a half, my... Uh, I grew up in north of Spokane, and I, I, I think I have shared this story recently, but Russ uh, and Julie both assure me I have not. So if this is a repeat, I am sorry. But uh, well, I grew up uh, a few miles north of, of Spokane, so kind of like in between Spokane and, and Deer Park. And we lived out in the country, my family and I did, and so there were a lot of country roads. And uh, my dad grew up in a very small city, Lind, uh, Washington, if you guys know where Lind is. And, uh, I mean, I th- my dad was probably driving the, uh, the wheat trucks at a, the age of 12 or something like that. Uh, it was different back then, certainly. But he had this sense of, well, Kevin should learn how to drive early. Like, who cares about the permitting process? Let's just get Kevin out on the road. And so uh, we, we pulled out our uh, 1990 light blue uh, Subaru wagon, which was going to be my car, and uh, started driving some of the country roads out there. Not a lot of people 
you know, uh, roads with uh, out pedestrians on them. It was like a kind of a, a perfect situation. And so I begin to drive, and it would be like a weekend thing. Every Saturday, we would go out, and uh, we'd, you know, we'd spend an hour, and we'd uh, go and practice driving. And I honestly don't know how many weekends we did this in a row, but I, I do know that it, it kind of culminated in um, one time. Usually what would happen is my dad would drive us out to a road, and then we would switch, and then I would drive, and then he would drive us back home. Well, I kind of got, I guess, decent. I mean, he felt comfortable in the car with me, and, and he thought, uh, you know, maybe it's time that Kevin drives us all the way back home. And so he said, you know, let's, we're gonna, you're going to drive home. Uh, we don't need to switch drivers at this point. And, and I kind of was like, uh, so I'm pulling into, like, you want me to pull into the garage and the whole deal? And he's like, yeah, you're, this is, like, this is time. It's time to do this. Great, you know, awesome. Uh, my dad is a, a great, great man. Maybe not the best teacher in the world. Sometimes, um, sometimes he just kind of thinks you have an understanding of something with maybe you don't fully have that understanding, and he's not super detailed. Honestly, I'm probably a lot like that in some ways. But my dad um, forgot to tell me that when you were driving an automatic car, you just use one foot. You don't have one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas, but you have one foot so that there's no way you could touch both pedals at the same time, and the foot just moves back and forth. And I just didn't know that. I just assumed there's two pedals. I have two feet. This makes a ton of sense. Uh, And when you're out on an open road, there's not a ton of reason to drive any differently, right? So I'm getting, you know, I'm pretty proficient. I'm coming in and we kind of, you know, you like crest this hill and you come down and then uh, we go into the garage and I I remember just being like, okay, like this, like I got to be pretty folk, like, like getting into a garage, it may seem easy for us to drive now, but when you're first driving, it's like, I really got to nail this thing. Like I got to get it right in there. So I get in there and, and the car's about halfway into the garage and I just, I like free, like I freeze up. And I, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to stop and slow myself down right now, and then I'll just I'll go a little bit slower to the garage. And with those two feet, I got a little confused, and I just slammed right on the gas. And all I see in front of me is our white freezer that's in the garage, and I plow into that thing um, going 60 or 70 miles an hour. <laughs> I was probably going five miles an hour. It felt really fast, though. And that freezer just absolutely buckles at a 90 degree. And I, all I remember is this uh, turkey like popping out of the freezer and spinning on the hood of the car. And I didn't even press on the gas. The, the freezer certainly stopped the car at this point. And I remember I just turned and I looked at my dad. And my dad's eyes were this big. And he looked right at me. And the only thing I could do was open that door and I sprinted out of the garage <laughs> and ran around to the other side of the house like, and just kind of sat uh, underneath the deck of our house and just sat there and just was weeping, thinking, well, I guess I will never drive again. <laughs> and I was so, like, it was just one of those emotional events where you're like, I have screwed up so bad. There, there is no way we can ever afford to repay the car or replace the car and fix the freezer and get, buy the turkey again. And, uh, you know, like all that stuff is going through my mind, just weeping underneath our, uh, our uh, what am I looking for, guys? Um, the deck. Thank you. Our deck. I, I was actually in that moment right there. <laughs> 
and just sitting there, and it felt like an eternity. And I can remember my dad coming around, and uh, he, I mean, it took maybe four or five minutes. I'm sure he was kind of assessing the damage, and he himself thanking God that he was alive. And, <laughs> and I remember him came, came down, and he just gave me a big hug, and he said, Kevin, it's okay. Like, it's, it's going to be fine. The car's okay. We're okay. The freezer's a disaster. <laughs> we'll figure out the freezer. And then he told me the story of when he was learning to drive, that he uh, backed his car out uh, directly into his neighbor's car. And so he kind of shared this experience of, I struggled when I was younger too. Like, it, this is a process. And I can just remember in that moment, and, and maybe not in that moment, but as I reflect back on it, like, what, what an incredible amount of grace Like, he could have been so frustrated. And frankly, he had the right to be so frustrated, right? I mean, this was going to cost him a ton of money. But instead, he just gave me a big hug and he said, it's okay. We're going to get back out there next weekend after the car's repaired. (laughs) We're going to learn to drive. You will never, this will not be a thing that plagues you for the rest of your life. And it was just that moment of, like, unadulterated, reckless grace. It just didn't matter. You see, the kingdom is not about efficiency. The kingdom is not about the best possible return on investments. It's poured out abundantly into this world until all things are saturated. And in times when it seems that being measured or calculated might be the best course of action, God's reckless grace extends in a completely different way. It's blind to the world's preconceived ideas of what is right or what is practical. It's not hung up on cultural fairness. It welcomes all without a question. It cannot be contained to just what makes sense because it's fundamentally different. And it fundamentally does not make sense. Its depth for all people and expansion over all things is unlike anything that we have ever known. And whether we are those who are hired first or last, we have received the grace of God. It's been freely given and re-given and will continue to be given until the end of our days. And his compassion has led him into the marketplace where we stand. And his reckless grace keeps the doors open until all people have had an opportunity to walk through. What I think is interesting about this parable is there really is no end to the story. If you read it, you'll sense this. There's really no resolve. There's no closure. We don't actually know what happens. We're left hanging, wondering if the hired men respond to the statement of the owner. Or does the owner maybe dig a little bit deeper and pay those who were hired first a little bit more? Or do those hired men just leave in frustration with the principles of fair and equitable pay, not allowing them to accept what they believed was too little of a wage? Did those hired last feel guilty? Or did they feel honored? Did they feel loved? All we get at the end is Jesus once again speaking the repeating gospel truth of the last shall be first and the first last. So what do we do with a story that has no ending? 
I think we realize that we are, in fact, the ending of this story. How we interpret and then live out the principles within it becomes the conclusion to this story. You see, we can either live lives like the men who were hired first, believing that we deserve a different lot in life, questioning the intentions or lack of intention with the owner, never quite being satisfied or content in the situation with which we find ourselves. But the truth remains that entitlement will poison our life. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. And the sobering truth remains that those who feel entitled to it will not be given the kingdom. Or, maybe our attention shifts to always look at the fulfilled promises and reckless grace of God. Looking at His goodness rather than ourselves and what we think we deserve. Accepting what has been given. Finding peace and joy in the very fact that we have simply been invited. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Rather than looking for ways we have felt looked over, our movement needs to be toward God's grace, recognizing even in moments we may not feel it that we have received immeasurably more than what we could have ever imagined. And when we do that, both individually and corporately, then our community will become more like the kingdom. You see, I'm convinced the church does not need to be responsible with grace. It's not a limited resource that must be protected and dispensed cautiously. We sometimes act as though if given too freely, we might squander grace. But where in scripture do we see Jesus hold grace back? Where do we see him make someone work for his grace? When does Jesus tell someone they don't deserve his grace? We don't see these things in Jesus. So how would it ever be okay for us to act in these ways? If we are going to turn from entitlement and accept his reckless grace, then we have to be willing to extend it to others as well. Timothy Keller famously said, and I'll end with this, God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. I would take it one step further and say God's reckless grace is our only hope. It's our only hope because by it we are redeemed and sanctified and through it we live lives open and inviting to the world around. There is nothing else that will change our lives or change the world than God's Reckless grace. I'm going to invite up the band. We're going to worship through a few more songs. And while we do, we thought, what a better way to refocus our lives than taking communion this morning, coming to the table.
Frankly, it might be the ultimate act of refocusing on the grace and mercy of Jesus. So take time this morning as you come to the table. Release that which you feel entitled to. Maybe even bring that piece of paper up, holding it. And before you take of the bread, before you take of the cup, say, God, take these things from me. And embrace the reckless grace 